All right, well, good evening again. It's good to see everyone. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 11? Exodus 11. So far we uh, have looked at nine of the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt. And tonight we'll um, begin to look at the final and most devastating plague of all the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. I say begin to look because it's tied in with the Passover. And so we want to look at that uh, to a large degree tonight as well. We won't actually see the uh, death of the firstborn until next time. But uh, let's start by uh, looking at uh, Exodus 11 verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. The Hebrew is kind of like throw you out. Okay, uh, You know, yeah, this last plague, you know, he's going to want you to go so bad, he'll throw you out of Egypt. Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now, at this point, the Egyptians would pretty much give the Jewish people anything they wanted to get rid of them. Okay? And they had come to greatly fear Moses and his God. That's why it says they really respected him. Well, you know, they were listening when Pharaoh was hardening his heart. Uh, even Pharaoh's top guys came to him after the last plague and said, look, what are you doing? Let these people go. Don't you realize the whole nation's destroyed? We can't endure any other uh, judgments, okay? But Pharaoh wouldn't listen. Now, all the articles of gold and silver, and actually there was more than that, which we're going to see in a moment, but everything that the, um, the Jewish people asked their neighbors for, okay, their Egyptian neighbors, uh, articles of gold, silver, precious stones, uh, fine linens and so on, uh, all of this amounted to back pay. They had been in slavery for over 400 years. I'm sure this didn't cover those 400 years of working to the bone and getting no pay. But this amounted to back pay. And much of it, guys, as we're going to see, will be used to build the tabernacle once they go into the wilderness. Because, you know, they're building with gold and silver and fine fabrics. Where, where did all that come from? Well, it came from the Egyptians as they plundered them. But uh, this was really a fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, verse 14, when God says, look, your descendants are going to serve uh, in a foreign land for 400 years. But after that, I'm going to bring them back to this place, to Canaan. And uh, verse 14 of Genesis 15 and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And then later than that, I mean, he prophesied or foretold to Moses earlier in Exodus 3, verses 21 and 22. Here's what God told Moses when he first called him uh, by the burning bush to go to Pharaoh. He said, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder 
the Egyptians. Okay, well, God is making good about what he had promised earlier. So Exodus 11, verse 4. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. So here's something about God's judgment. Uh, it plays no favorites. All right? On the day of judgment, uh, unbelievers will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't matter if they were a king or if they were a pauper. If they have not received Christ, they are going to be judged. I mean, the great white throne is the, is the ultimate level playing field. All right? And God is basically saying this here. I'm going to judge the first. I'm going to kill the firstborn of both man and beast. And it doesn't matter where it's, whether it's Pharaoh's son or if it's a woman, you know, doing house chores or whatever it might be. Uh, the firstborn of man and beast is going to die. Verse 6. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall uh, be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does not make, excuse me, that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out and all the people who follow you. After that, Moses said, I will go out, I will leave this land. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So you see this escalating situation. The more Moses comes in before Pharaoh and says, Look, I got some more bad news. Since you hardened your heart tomorrow, another judgment, all right? And, every t and of course, this is wearing on Pharaoh. I mean, he's taking heat from everybody, okay? Not just from Moses and Aaron, but... Uh, from his own people who are begging him to change his mind, let these people go. So uh, it's gotten a little heated here. But the question arises, why did God kill only the firstborn? Why did God kill only the firstborn? Well, let me just say this. First of all, it was his mercy in killing only the firstborn of Egypt. And not all the people or most of the Egyptians who were involved in demon worship, in all kinds of pagan sins. I mean, God could have wiped out the whole nation and been justified, but our God is very merciful. You know, it's kind of like uh, many years later, Ananias and Sapphira, remember that in Acts 5? And how they sold a piece of land. You know, people were selling property, bringing the money to the apostles, laying it at their feet to dole it out to those less fortunate. And so, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, owned some property, they sold it, and they kept back some of the money and only brought some of it to the apostles, claiming they had brought all of it. Well, here's the thing. Peter knew immediately from the Holy Spirit what they had done. And the issue was nobody told them to sell their land. Peter says, no, we didn't tell you to sell your land. And even if, after you did, you didn't have to bring the money to us. But because you said you brought all of it and you lied, therefore you're going to be judged. Well, Ananias was there first. Sapphira was out somewhere. And uh, Peter confronted him, and, uh, and, and after Peter says, you know, because you lied to the Holy Spirit, God is going to judge you. He falls down dead, right there on the spot. The young men take his body out and bury it. A few hours later, his wife comes in. Peter questions her, did you and your husband sell your property for such an amount of money and give it to... Yes, such and such... Well, she's lied. 
Peter says, I can't believe you conspired with your husband to do this. The feet of the men that took your husband out will take you out. She falls down dead. Now, people read that and they go, you know, why did they have to die? Aggravated with God that he did something wrong, unrighteous, you know? I mean, people say, why did Ananias and Sapphira have to die? Let me just say this to you. The real question is, why do the rest of us get to live? See, we, we've gotten so twisted in our thinking. We're so quick to ascribe wrongdoing to God Almighty, we don't look at ourselves anymore. You know, God says, the soul that sins shall surely what? Has everybody in this room, including myself, have we sinned? Ananias and Sapphira lied. They played the hypocrite. Anybody in this room ever lie and play the hypocrite? All of us have. Why does God let us live? Because he's a merciful and gracious God. Well, then why did he take out Ananias and Sapphira? Because if he didn't once in a while show us that he was still a holy and righteous God who hates sin, and once in a while along the highway of life, he takes somebody out or, or, or holds them responsible for their sin they're doing and judges them to let the rest of us fear that we are not to take him lightly. And just because he's so good and so gracious and, and you know, let so much of our sin go undealt with, although he's not going to let it go undealt with forever, there are people that think, well, because God hasn't judged me yet, maybe he doesn't care how I'm living. Or the ultimate one today, maybe he agrees with my lifestyle. And so every once in a while, God will prove that he is still a holy and righteous God. And he will judge someone who is living in sin. But the issue is never, why did they have to die? The issue is always, why does God let me live? And I better not push the grace of God. I better understand he, his anger does burn hot against sin. And I, I want to relate to him out of obedience, a life of holiness, and so on. All right? So God does wipe out the firstborn, yes, but I think, you know, he could have wiped out everybody. So in that regard, he was acting mercifully by only taking out the firstborn. But more to the point, listen to me now, in most cultures, the firstborn sons are considered special. In Egypt, they were considered sacred, sacred. You need to remember that God called Israel his firstborn son and warned Pharaoh at the very beginning of this showdown. Look at the Exodus chapter 4 once. I want you to understand that our God never judges anybody without warning them. But even when it came to God killing the firstborn, God had warned Pharaoh. He called Israel his firstborn. Look at verse 22, Exodus 4. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, talking to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So Pharaoh was warned. Now listen to me. Many of Pharaoh's people died because he was so arrogant and filled with pride so as to not let the people of Israel go. Even after the first few plagues, you would have thought, well, you know what, if I was him, Israel's God's pretty mighty, pretty powerful. Uh, I better listen to what he wants and, and, and do what he says. But no, Pharaoh hardened his heart more and more and more to the God of Israel. And um, he, we read in chapter 5, verse 2, as Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? You can just hear the arrogance. 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor, nor will I let Israel go. That was his attitude. Very proud, very arrogant. Now listen, the leadership of a nation is a great privilege, but it also carries with it great responsibility. Many lives are in the hands of those who lead nations. Many lives. And um, leaders can send uh, men and women into harm's way in war. Uh, other things can be done uh, through leadership that put people's lives at risk. I'm convinced, though, that, as the Bible says, all leaders are appointed by God. Now, that doesn't mean that all leaders act the way God wants them to act. It just means that God raises up kings and takes them down. Remember Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, where she talks about this. You know, she's praising God. And at one point she says, God, you're the one who raises up kings, takes them down, exalts nations, and brings them down to the ground. You are in control, is what her point was. You are sovereign. But even though God puts people in positions of leadership, and I'm thinking now like Pharaoh, have heads of state, God will hold them accountable on the day of judgment, how their leadership affected the lives of those who were under them. And they're going to have to answer for that, I'm convinced. It's kind of like what James said on a larger scale to pastors or teachers, don't hurry into the teaching ministry. We will incur the more strict judgment. What do you think that how that applies to a, a national leader who can affect millions, all right? I can affect a couple hundred maybe. But there are those who can affect many more than that. And so their leadership will have a greater effect. So God is just basically, you know, calling Pharaoh to task, basically. But let's not forget that these plagues were directed at the gods of Egypt. All the way through, okay? Let me read to you what one historian said concerning this. He said, and I quote, the God, of the, the God of the dead was Osiris, whose name meant the mighty one, he who has sovereign power. His assistant was Anubis, the God of the underworld. Anubis supervised the embalming process and guided the dead during their passage uh, to the afterlife. He came in canine form, which... Um, Incidentally, may partly explain the reference to dogs in verse 7, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. The author says the Israelites would remain untouched by death, thus proving that Anubis had no power over them. Meanwhile, the death of Egypt's sons would prove that Israel's God was the Lord of life and death, end quote. And as we've said several times already, the pharaohs of Egypt and their firstborn sons were considered gods, were considered gods. And therefore, the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son was especially significant. Again, that same historian said, and I quote, Pharaoh's son was the prince of Egypt, the next in line to sit on Egypt's throne. More than that, the Egyptians believed that he was a, a successor to the gods. When his father died, he would become the son of Amun-Ra and also the son of Osiris, Thus the Egyptians revered the life of the prince, end quote. So again, the, there's a lot going on with the, with the judgment against the firstborn, okay? And uh, when God killed the firstborn, especially the firstborn of Pharaoh, is kind of like his exclamation point. Who is the Lord that I should let Israel go? I don't know him. I'm not going to let Israel go. Well, really, well, let me introduce you to myself. And all these plagues were God's way of... Uh, getting up close and personal with Pharaoh, all right? And the death of the firstborn was God's exclamation point on the whole process. 
that, you know, this was once and for all, the gods of Egypt were absolutely helpless when it came to the Lord God Almighty, for He alone is the true and living God, the Almighty who does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3 says that. And you know what? That would terrify me. If the only thing we knew about our God was that He was sovereign and could do whatever He wanted, and it was all-powerful, that would frighten me to death. If it was not coupled with another attribute of God, that He's a loving God. He's a loving God. Yes, he will bring judgment eventually, but it's the last resort. That's not his first choice. But uh, he is almighty. He can do whatever he wants, and no one can say, why have you done thus, Paul says, because God is in control. So, you know, he's never one to ask me my counsel. He's wise, <laughs> very wise. He just does what he wants. I love it. There are several places in the Bible where God says, I have said it, I will do it. Wow. Bring it on, Lord. I just, you know, he's righteous and he's, he's holy. Exodus 11, verse 7. But against none of the children of Israel, God says again, shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. When you read that, think of between believers and unbelievers. Uh, Egypt being the unbelievers, of course, Israel, the believers. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, and I quote, The Lord hath put a difference between those who are his people and those who are not. There are many distinctions among men which will one day be blotted out, such as wealth, positions of authority, and so on. But Spurgeon says, But permit me to remind you at the outset that this, where God makes a distinction, a difference, ultimately, Spurgeon said, uh, has an eternal application. Eternal application. So, again, it doesn't matter how wealthy a person is or how poor, how important they were in this life. You know, all those who went ahead going through life singing, I'm going to do it my way, that kind of thing. You know what? They're going to stand before a holy God one day. You know, he's going to say, I wanted you to be my child. Uh, I wanted you to come my way to my son but you refused. Now I have to honor your choice, not my will, but your will be done. You didn't want anything to do with me on earth, and now I can't have anything to do with you in eternity. Well, verses 9 and 10, we read, But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before, before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now, verses 9 and 10 are just a kind of a summary of the first nine plagues, is the idea. Just summarizing why God has brought the plagues. Uh, because God gave Pharaoh a chance, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and therefore God brought the plagues. Now, chapter 12, starting with verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Uh, this was going to be the beginning of a new life for the Jewish people. And uh, therefore, this would become the first month for them, signifying a new beginning. Technically, this marked the birth of the nation of Israel, starting with their deliverance from Egypt and the beginning of a new life as God's chosen nation. Really, that's where it begins. I mean... God singled out Abraham a long time before this 
to become the father of a nation, a new nation. Seventy people entered into Egypt 400 years earlier. Now about three million are coming out. So they have become a great nation, as God had promised. All right? But uh, as they were delivered from Egypt, now it marks the beginning of the nation, really. And uh, as such, that uh, this would be a new beginning for them all, really. And, uh, but it would also be the beginning of a new calendar for the Jewish people. Uh, they would now have two calendars that would govern their lives, a civil and a religious calendar. And God takes the seventh month of the civil year, which is where they were in, and makes it the first month of the ecclesiastical year. Uh, their civil calendar begins around our late September, early October. So our September-October period uh, begins their civil uh, calendar. Their religious calendar uh, begins around our March-April. New Year's Day in the civil year is Rosh Hashanah, which means uh, beginning of the year. And uh, Rosh Hashanah being the first month of the civil year falls on the seventh month of the religious calendar, the month of Tishri. And a lot of neat things, a lot of good things happen in that month. It's one of their biggest months for the major feasts. We know, uh, and it corresponds again to our September, October, but we see in the month of Tishri, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, three of their major feasts. But Passover marked the beginning of the religious year. And the focus was always on the Lamb, the Lamb. One pastor had this to say concerning this calendar and dating. He said, he said, monumental as it was, the Passover would not be the only event which would turn the calendar on its head. For when the incarnation divided the global calendar into B.C. and A.D., in other words, before Christ and the year of our Lord, all of history was impacted. But there is a time yet to come when Antichrist will seek to change the calendar again in order to eradicate the name of Jesus Christ altogether. You can read Daniel 7, verse 25. He said, we're seeing a hint of this even today as the terms CE and BCE, common era, and before common era, are increasingly, increasingly used in Europe as replacements for AD and BC. Has your calendar been changed personally? What he's saying is, look, if you're a Christian, you had a B.C., and now you're living A.D., all right? You look back on the B.C. years, and it's like, who was that guy or that gal, right? I mean, the author says, you know, it seemed like Neanderthals, B.C. Okay, a little joke, all right? But um, the moment we accepted Christ, that was our A.D. That was the year or the moment of the Lord we became new creations, and uh, everything changed. But the world is working hard to erase Christ from the world's memory, the world's stage. Uh, one way they're doing I mean, this man impacted the very calendar we go by. And the world can't have that. So instead of B.C., it's, uh, you know, B.C.E., before Common Era. And instead of A.D., it's uh, C.E., or Common Era, which begins the new calendar, the, so on. All right, verse... One, again, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Uh, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb... 
Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall, you shall make your account for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house. The lintel would be the crossbeam on the top of the door of the two doorposts. Okay, and um, they shall put the blood on the two doorposts and lintel of the house where they eat the Passover lamb. Verse twelve: For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, did you see the progression here? He talks about a lamb. Then he talks about the lamb. And finally, he says, your lamb. And guys, it's interesting how the Holy Spirit places that in the text because that's how many people in this world view Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, some believe that Jesus is a lamb. In other words, he's a way to God, all right? There are many roads that lead to heaven, many roads that lead to God. Jesus is one of many ways. He's a lamb, all right? Even though he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Yet many believe Jesus Christ is one of many roads that lead to heaven. Number two, there are others that believe Jesus is the Lamb. What do I mean? Well, they actually believe He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the only way to heaven. I mean, maybe they grew up in church or uh, went to Awanas when they were kids. They know the gospel. But they only leave Jesus Christ as the Lamb. They never make Him their Lamb because... You know what? They don't want to let go of the way they're living. So they have the head knowledge. They know the truth about him, but they have not applied that truth to their life because they don't want to stop living the way they're living. See, it's only when a person makes Jesus their lamb. You know, you must make Jesus your lamb if his blood is going to protect you from the judgment that's coming. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He even called Jesus our Passover. In other words, Jesus in his earthly life not only observed the Passover, guess what? He fulfilled it in his death. As John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because he would be crucified. Uh, you know, the Passover Lamb, he would be crucified, killed, that we might be saved. But you see, the idea is that uh, the Passover Lamb was supposed to be without spot or blemish. And we know that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God without spot, which means without original sin, without blemish, which means acquired sin. So he was born sinless, sinless. he lived all his life sinlessly, is the idea, who was then killed and whose blood must be applied to the house of our hearts by faith. I mean, this will cause the judgment of God to pass over us, just as it passed over each house in Egypt where the blood of the lamb was applied. And remember this, the angel of death didn't pass over a house because it contained good people, all right? I mean, that house could have contained the worst people in Israel. 
But if the blood was applied to the doorpost and lintel of the house by faith, the firstborn was spared. Just like today. Just like today. I want you to understand this. This whole picture here, yes, has a historical reference, but it has a spiritual significance too. The firstborn symbolically represents those who were born first, which means born on the earth of Adam, okay, of Adam, and therefore bore the curse of Adam, which passed down to all of his descendants. Look, the Bible talks about us being born again to be saved. That implies we've been born once already. Yes, when we were born into this world, we were born descendants of Adam, all right? That was our first birth. We were firstborn, but we were born uh, into this world with a curse on us, the blood curse of Adam, which passed down to all of his descendants, right? We all had the wrath of God abiding on us, every human being. But when we applied the blood of Christ to our lives, we were born again, born into a new family that doesn't have the blood curse of, of Adam upon it. We became children of God, members of the family of God, no longer marked for death, but listen, now blessed with eternal life. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive, given eternal life. So guys, once again, Jesus can't just be a lamb or even the lamb. He must be your lamb if his blood is going to keep God's judgment from touching your life. And the question, well, how do we make Jesus our lamb? Well, I'm sure most of you already know that. But yes, believe in him. All right. Commit your life to him which implies following him, right? In essence, your lamb then becomes your shepherd. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life. When somebody receives Christ, they receive a new nature, the Holy Spirit moves inside, and therefore we want to follow Jesus. You know, We want to obey him. And that's an evidence that something has taken place in our hearts. How many here in this room, before you got saved, would have set aside time after work, work all day, you're tired, busy, some of you came a long way to come to Bible study? Why did you do that? Because you felt forced to do it? No, because you love the Lord, you want to study His Word. See, that's the new nature uh, in operation, right? So back in Exodus 12, verse 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it, uh, from the uh, sheep or from the goats, verse 6, Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Uh, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. A couple of things I wanted to point out here. That's why I reread this, and then we'll move on. First of all, verse 4, it says, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. The idea was that you weren't to waste these sacrifices okay i mean if you had just a couple of people in the house a whole lamb there's gonna be a lot and there weren't the, no leftovers we're gonna see they had to eat it all and then destroy the rest so god is basically saying look you know 
I don't want you to waste all this food. So uh, if you don't have enough people for a whole lamb, then partner with your neighbors. Okay. Later on, the rabbis uh, mandated that, well, that must mean that you have to have at least 10, no more than 20. But that's what they came up with. Okay. But Israel kind of took it in as a kind of a law. And uh, so um, they began to, to have a minimum of 10 people uh, for each Passover lamb at Passover time. Uh, but there's something else here that's going to become very significant to the story of Jesus being our Passover lamb. Again, verse 3, and I want to read then verse 6. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Verse 6, Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now, guys, later, when the tabernacle was built and the priesthood was established, uh, the people were to select a lamb and then bring it to the priest on the 10th day of the month of Nisan for inspection to make sure it was without spot or blemish. And if the lamb was found to be without spot or blemish, it would then be pronounced worthy to become the Passover lamb for the family. And then it was brought to the priest on the 14th, or in other words, the priest took it on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, and uh, they would kill it because that was the Passover, the 14th of Nisan. Now, fast forward 1,500 years to Palm Sunday, 32 AD. Turn to Matthew 21. Because we really can't look at Passover and the Passover lamb and how it relates to Jesus without understanding what happened the week of Jesus' crucifixion. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. He said, go into the village there and you'll find a, a donkey and it's colt tied up and bring them to me and so on. So they brought the, brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them to set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Of course, this was Palm Sunday, a very important day uh, in the uh, history of the Jewish people. Uh, by the way, it was the only day in Jesus' entire ministry that he actually planned and promoted a public demonstration to make him king. Now, several times in his ministry before this, they wanted to take him by force and make him king, right? When he fed them with small amounts of food or he healed a bunch of sick people. There several times they wanted to take him by force. But what happened? He always slipped out from among them saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, his hour now has come. And um, just hang with me, though. Uh, the time had come for something very important to happen, a prophecy to be fulfilled. You see, 600 years earlier, God gave one of the most important prophecies in all the scripture to Daniel, who was living in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity, a prophecy that indicated the exact day Messiah would come and present himself to them as their king. And according to the prophecy given to Daniel, 
uh, from the time the commandment would go forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the Messiah would come and present himself as king would be 483 years. Now, Daniel was living there in Babylon, and the Babylonians used a 360-day calendar. Every so often they would add a month because you know that uh, our calendar is 365 and a quarter days. Every four years we add a day. So there's a leap year this year, uh, February 29th, and a day is added to kind of correct the calendar unless you, it starts getting out of whack right after a while. Well, they would just add a month uh, every six or so years, okay, seven or eight years, and that would adjust the calendar back, okay? But prophetically, a, uh, a prophetic year is 360 days. Now, Sir Robert Anderson, in his work, The Coming Prince, does a masterful job uh, of research showing that the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given to Nehemiah by King Artaxerxes on March 14, 445 B.C. And again, because Daniel was living in Babylon, 360-day uh, calendar, if you times 483 years by 360 days, it gives you 173,880 days. If you add that number to March 14, 445 B.C., it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday. This is the very day. Palm Sunday. Remember when Jesus rode up on the Mount of Olives and his disciples were going crazy and Hosanna was being saved now. That was a messianic psalm, a psalm that, you know, they were, uh, were, were to recite or to shout when Messiah finally came, the king. Well, his disciples are recognizing him as the king, but the nation for the most part had rejected him. Many people didn't even know who he was. Who is this? When he rode into the city of Jerusalem. Oh, this is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee, you know, Nazareth of Galilee. What? You know, they were so consumed with their lives, a lot of them didn't even pay attention to his ministry. But uh, when he got to the top of the Mount of Olives and looked down at Jerusalem, he wept. I think it was Luke 19. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known, this is your day, the day that was prophesied to you. But now... You know, you're going to be left desolate. Your city is going to be ransacked and destroyed and so on, all because you didn't know the day of your visitation. All because they didn't know prophecy. There are those today who are telling us that, you know what, we don't need prophecy in the church today. Prophecy is counterproductive. Prophecy gets Christians looking at some pie in the sky. We have to do work now, all right? So let's stop talking about what's coming in the future, and let's focus on the here and now. Well, Jesus is telling us that because Israel didn't know prophecy, didn't know the day of his coming, God held them responsible. And I think God's going to hold his church responsible for not teaching prophecy, not uh, making aware God's people, making them aware of what's going on and the prophecies in Scripture and so on. If God didn't want us to know prophecy, why did he fill over a quarter of the Bible with prophecy? Because he wanted to know what was coming. He told us in many places, be watchful and vigilant, right? Well, how can you be watchful and vigilant if you don't know what's coming? Or what are the signs that point to his coming, is the idea. So this was a very special day, Palm Sunday, uh, April 6, 32 AD, the day Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, presenting himself to the nation as their king, as Daniel had prophesied 600 years earlier. But listen, guys, and this is really the point I wanted to get at. This was also a special day for another reason. 
Jesus Christ, we know, was crucified on Passover because he was our Passover lamb, Paul said, right? What was four days before Passover? Well, that was the 14th of Nisan, Passover. But what happened on the 10th of Nisan, four days earlier? He presented himself on Palm Sunday. Now you have to understand something. As we just read in Exodus, on the 10th day of Nisan, they were supposed to bring their lambs, Passover lambs, to the priests, who would actually keep them for four days. Why? Because they wanted to examine these animals to make sure they were in good health, that they didn't have any kind of spot or blemish, uh, they weren't born with some kind of defect. They had not picked up some kind of a scar or defect from maybe an animal getting a hold of it and chewing it up a little bit or falling down a ravine and getting cut up or having a broken leg that was had to be reset. The idea was they had to make sure it was without spot or blemish. And so the lambs would stay there with the priests for four days until the rabbis could determine that um, they were worthy of being uh, offered to God uh, at the Passover. Now, as I said uh, earlier, the rabbis had determined you had to have at least 10 people to eat a Passover lamb, right? And during Passover time, as we have said before, uh, Passover time in Israel, of course, the city of Jerusalem would swell, would swell with pilgrims from all over the known world who would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the greatest of their national feasts, Passover. It was the dream of every Jew to at least make one trip in their lifetime. Some of them lived very far away, and it was expensive. Some of them would save up their entire life to make one trip to Jerusalem at Passover time. That's how special it was. Now, 30 years later from Jesus' crucifixion, Rome decided to see how many Jews actually came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But the problem was there's a lot of folks, okay? But they knew the rabbis mandated you had to had at least 10 people to eat the Passover lamb. So it would be easier for them to count the Passover lambs being brought to Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan than to count the people. And so that's what they did. And they counted 250,000 lambs that were brought to Jerusalem for uh, on Palm Sunday of that year, 10th of Nisan, uh, to be inspected for four days before they would be offered as the Passover lamb, right? So that was about two and a half million people. Two and a half million people. Of course, these lambs would be sacrificed to remind the people how the blood of the first Passover lambs some 1,500 years earlier had delivered their forefathers from the judgment of God that he was pouring out on, or going to pour out on, on Egypt, right? Um, but I want you to see this in your mind's eye. It's the 10th of Nisan, 32 AD, Palm Sunday. Imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs coming from all over the surrounding areas into Jerusalem to be presented to the priests there in the temple. And along with all of these thousands and thousands of lambs, there is another lamb coming, riding a donkey up the Mount of Olives, making his way finally into the city of Jerusalem of course, he was the Lamb of God who presented himself to the chief priests who could find no fault in him, right? They couldn't find any sin in him to accuse him of. They, they had to finally make stuff up, didn't they? Got a couple of worthless characters and paid them money to lie uh, about Jesus because they couldn't find anything wrong in him. 
Of course, he, he was eventually turned over to Pilate, uh, who, after examining Jesus, declared, I find no fault in this man. He was in the temple area for those four days. Palm Sunday, for the rest of the week, he was in the temple area teaching, basically presenting himself to the nation to determine if he was a worthy lamb. Of course, he was. And after being declared sinless or without spot or ble and blemish, he, as the Lamb of God, was then sacrificed on the cross, whose blood, when applied to our lives by faith, cleanses us from our sins and causes the judgment of God to again pass over us. Well, Exodus 12, verse 7, God says, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it, where they eat the Passover lamb. We've talked about this before, but they had to kill these lambs and pour their blood into a basin. And then they would take a hyssop branch and they would dip it in the blood and they would strike the doorposts and lentil of their house with the bloody hyssop branch. And of course, what sign did that make on the door in blood? A cross. Interesting, isn't it? A cross. Of course, they had no idea what they were doing, but God told them to do this because that would be a sign that God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over and not kill the firstborn in that house. But I want you to understand something. There was no blood placed on the threshold of the doorway leading into the house. That would be on the floor, right? You have your lintel on top, your threshold on bottom. No blood was to be put on the threshold of the doorway leading the house because, listen, Again, the Lamb's blood represents the blood of Christ, and only those who are perishing trample his blood underfoot. Not those who are saved, right? Only those who are perishing trample the precious blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. Well, verse 8, Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor the pagans ate meat raw, okay? And uh, there were health reasons why God says, don't eat raw meat, okay? But here, of the Passover lamb, don't eat it raw, nor boiled it all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. So it was to be roasted whole, whole, okay, in the fire. Now, uh, first of all, God said the Passover lamb had to be roasted in fire, not boiled. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The fire represented the fire of God's judgment. And it pointed to Jesus hanging on the cross where symbolically the fire of God's judgment, the wrath of God was being poured out upon him as he hung on that cross and became our substitute. He became sin, our sin sacrifice. He didn't turn into sin as some people say, no. He became sin in the sense that he became the sacri sin sacrifice. Um, he himself was perfect. Uh, in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifice for the sin offering had to be without spot or blemish. It didn't turn into sin. Jesus never turned into sin, as some people try to say. No, that's absolutely theologically wrong. All right, He was made an offering for sinners, is the idea. And God poured out his full fury on Jesus, that when we receive our Savior, when we receive him as our Savior, it allows God to pour upon us his blessings and eternal life. Someone had to be punished. Sin had to be paid for. 
So either we were going to pay for it, which would have taken eternity because God is infinitely holy and therefore any sin against him is infinitely egregious, infinitely wicked and will require an eternity to atone for. There's only one person who could have atoned for all the sins of humanity immediately, the Son of God who became a man, right? People say, well, how can Jesus have died for everyone's sins? Well, Paul actually answers that question in Romans by saying, well, how did one man bring sin to the whole human race? Didn't Adam bring sin to all of us? Why can't one man, who is the Son of God, take all of our sins away? Good point. Thankfully, Paul was a great theologian, right? But listen, just listen to this, though. From a practical standpoint, if the Jews had boiled the lamb, now, that's even taking into consideration they had a pot big enough, okay? But if they had boiled the lamb, guess what they would have done to it? They would have cut it up into pieces, no doubt breaking bones to stuff it in that pot. And God says, absolutely not. You are not to break one bone of the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, 46. In one house it shall be eaten, and you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, listen, nor shall you break one of its bones. And again, God is so adamant about this is because the Passover lamb once again speaks or points to Jesus, right? And how we are forbidden from kind of dividing Jesus up. What do I mean? Well, there are some that want to kind of divide God, divide Jesus up into parts and only take what appeals to them. So it's the love of God, you know, the love of Jesus. You know, they will quote Jesus whenever he says something loving and kind. But they will not quote Jesus when he talks about judgment or punishment for sin. They divide him up and only take parts that they like. There are those who don't even want his deity. They cut him up and say he was a great teacher. He was a great moral leader. But he wasn't God. So what are they doing? They're dividing Jesus up and only taking the parts that they like. Here's the deal. Jesus is who he is. We either take him as he is in his entirety, or we don't take him at all. God doesn't give us the luxury or the freedom to say, well, you know, Jesus, I like most of you. I'm going to cut off parts of you and just take that. Jesus says, look, I am who I am. Either you accept me for all that I am, God Almighty in human form, yes, loving, yes, kind, yes, gracious and merciful, but holy and righteous and just and so on, Either you accept me for who I am, because if you try to divide me up, you wind up with a false Jesus. A false Jesus. That's idolatry. When we try to make God into our image and likeness, now we have an idol. It's not God. It's a false representation of him. It's an idol. And that's what I believe God is really doing here. And the idea is, too, as you read the, God says you have to eat it all, uh, right there. And the parts you don't eat, you can't save till morning. No leftovers. You have to destroy the rest, okay? Again, I think the idea is that, you know, there's some people that want to take bites of Jesus, if I can put it that way, okay? Uh, you know, just take a little of Jesus at, at a time, you know, and uh, act like they're, you know, you know they're, they're so righteous and holy because they come to church and they, you know, feast on Jesus a little bit here, a little bit there. He's like the, the hors d'oeuvre or whatever, but he's not the main course. And that's the idea. God doesn't want us thinking that, you know, we can look at him as an appetizer. You know, he is the main course. He is either all or nothing, right? And that's the idea. So 
Um, all right. Also, God commanded the people of Israel that they were to eat the Passover lamb with unleavened bread and bitter with bitter herbs. And of course, the eating of bitter herbs with the Passover meal would always remind the Jewish people of all the years of hard, bitter bondage their forefathers endured, that they might have freedom. I think of America, you know. There's a lot of our forefathers that gave up quite a bit that we could have a nation of freedom. We're throwing it all away. Because this generation has not had to give up anything. And what comes too easily is appreciated too lightly. And that's just the way it is. History bears that out. The first generation fights for freedom. The second generation lives and enjoys the freedom. The third generation doesn't appreciate the freedom. And so you have a lot of people who are willing to give up our system of you know, freedom to let the government basically control every area of our life, not realizing what they're doing. That's another message. I'm sorry. Um, so the, the bitter herbs, okay? And later God would say, dip it in the salt water because the salt water represents the tears of all the years of bitter bondage, etc. And the fact that God commanded them to eat the lamb with unleavened bread was significant for two reasons. One practical, the other spiritual. But you know what? We don't have time to get into it tonight. Okay, I'm going to have to leave you hanging a little bit. There's just too much here. And uh, I just wanted to touch on some of the highlights. I mean, uh, yes, historical record but deeply symbolic, pointing to our Savior every step of the way. So next time we will continue, and we will look at uh, the Passover just a little bit longer, and then we will see, of course, the Exodus, the, the uh, death of the firstborn, and then the Exodus, and a nation will have been born. Uh, as God leads them to the base of Sinai and proposes a covenant to them. And we'll look at that, hopefully look at that, uh, next time. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, it is so rich with uh, truth and even um, symbolisms and so many principles uh, hidden in the text that we can learn from. And we thank you, Father. And we thank you, Lord, that so many in this room maybe started out thinking of Jesus as a lamb and then moved to the fact that they believed he was the lamb but by your grace, we moved into that third stage where we made Jesus our lamb. And it's only when we receive you, Lord Jesus, as our personal Savior that you will come inside, set us free from sin and power of, uh, of uh, sin that Satan has bound us with. So thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes. And we are here tonight because we're new creations and we love your word. We love you. And we want to study your word. So, Lord, continue to bless these studies in your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.